This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, dear friends, and welcome back to Sparkling Conversation over Equally Sparkling Food. My guest today is an actor, director and writer whose very first job in theatre came when he wrote a letter to Laurence Olivier at the Old Vic, who gave him a gig in the box office. His debut as a director was for Shirley Valentine in the West End, not a bad start, and his first film appearance was in Amadeus, directed by Milos Forman. He was a stalwart cast member in merchant ivory films such as Room with a View and Howard's End, and turned in a multiple scene-stealing performances as Gareth in Four Weddings and a Funeral. What's more, he's written acclaimed biographies of Oscar Wilde, Charles Dickens, Charles Lawton, Orson Welles and Richard Wagner, as well as a number of one-man shows. It is, of course, the wonderful, fabulous Simon Callow. I think it's a room with a view where Julian Sands and Rupert Graves yes. are dancing naked round the ponds and so yeah, are you. Yeah, and there they were, these gorgeous creatures. Gazelles, I said, uh, hotly yeah, pursued did. by a hippopotamus. <laughs> I'm standing on Greek Street in London, Soho. The name of the restaurant I'm standing in front of gives its address away. It's called 10 Greek Street, and it's a small bistro, a modern British bistro, I suppose you'd call it. When I reviewed it, I said that you look up halfway through lunch and realise just how well you're being fed. Now, I know Simon Callow loves his restaurants. He adores them. He eats out quite a lot. Uh, I'm not sure if he's been to this one, but I think he's going to like it. And we have a private dining room waiting for us just downstairs. Yes. Simon! Absolutely adorable to see you. Lovely to see you. Thank you for coming. I'm delighted. You know, restaurants are a thing for you, aren't they? They are. Probably. Very nearly my undoing, you know, because once I had a particularly good year financially, and uh, I went to my accountant and said, I don't seem to have made almost any profit this year. I said, well, what has happened to the money? And he said, you've eaten it. <laughs> We've met a few times over the years, yeah, we have, on and off. But the very first time, I don't know if I've ever told you this, I was 22 years old and I had been sent to New York by my editor to write the gossip column. I had a pretty quick start in journalism. I was on The Observer first time round. I'd booked into the Algonquin because it was the only hotel I'd heard of because my parents <laughs> stayed there. This would cause me trouble with the accounts department. <laughs> but at one, one afternoon, I think, I get into the lift going down and there you are with Pauline Collins. Oh, yes. And Pauline is sitting, there was a little jump seat in the lift yes. at the Algonquin. I have to say, the two of you looked magnificent. <laughs> Uh, it was exactly what a young man who was a bit sort of besotted with the idea of 
I was in New York for the first time. I was close to Broadway and all of that stuff, and I was writing about it. And then I come across you two. I wonder what that, whether that stay in New York for you was particularly significant, because you were directing Shirley Valentine, weren't you? I was. It was, of course, because it's always something to make your debut as a director on Broadway. But it happened to be at a time in my life, one of the rare times in my life, when everything seemed to go so well. So I directed Shirley Valentine, which had been a real... It was a huge hit in, in the West End. Huge. I then went to uh, The National to direct Single Spies, which was also a huge, huge success, and I was acting in it as well. And my book about Lawton had just come out, and I was on my way from Broadway to direct my first film. And I thought life will just go on like this, of course, always. I'll be writing a book, I'll be directing a film, I'll be directing a play, I'll be acting in plays, and uh, that'll be the pattern of my life. And of course, it all fell apart horribly after that. <laughs> so I'm laughing, I shouldn't laugh. That's a, a terrible you know, response. All collapsed. This is Neve. Neve, I know. Neve and I are old friends uh, so already. So I've got some bread to start you off. So this is our garlic and chilli bread. Um, with some dips. So we've got spiced yogurt, olive tapenade, and a whipped codsfer. Fantastic. There's no thing on earth more lovely than this. And what we're eating at the moment is that. Just crisp bread with salt, garlic. The garlic is really kind of chilly in it. Mm, fantastic. So what do you fancy? I I'm terribly uh, attracted to the truffled mushrooms on toast, I have to say, as a start. Okay. Cod's the thing for me. I adore cod. Mushrooms and cod. Mm. And I'll have the smoked trout riette. Mm -hmm. And the lamb, please. Lovely. Can I get you any drinks? Uh, white would be lovely. Um, so we have a lovely South African semillon, which is, mm -hmm. uh, it's got a little bit of oak to it, but mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's not too heavy. I think it would complement the fish very nicely. Perfect. Marvellous. Thank okay. you. Mm -hmm. Take it for yourself. One of those. Okay. <laughs> so at that point, everything was going brilliantly, but was there a period when it all stopped then for you? I went to make the movie. Is this the, the, ballad the Ballad of the Sad Café with Vanessa Redgrave, Rod Steiger, Keith Carradine, uh, an extraordinary kind of group of people all together. So how did it happen? How, how did you Ismail get it? Merchant. Ismail, for whom I had made a number of films, and uh, had read a review of me appearing in Faust, the Lyric Hammersmith, and decided in typically Ismailian fashion that that uh, qualified me to direct a film. So you'd already done Room I'd with done a View? I'd done Room with a View, uh, Morris. In the end, I think I made about nine films for them. And uh, it was just, we were just, there was none of the Hollywood uh, aggression about it. And did you break for meals at, uh, at long tables together well, on set? I mean, the thing about it's Not that I'm obsessed, but obviously. <laughs> we did break for meals indeed. And uh, uh, um, uh, that is my, always made sure that they were excellent meals. But, but of course, the most famous meals on uh, an Ismail film were the ones cooked by himself, uh, where he'd just cook for 25 people. He'd just summon all the ingredients of a curry or, or whatever else he was going to cook. It, it was his way of pacifying everybody. I did at the time say that the phrase to curry favour must have been invented for Ismail because that was, it was how he, you know, if, if, if suddenly the money had run out, which it frequently did, then he'd throw a curry banquet and we were all kind of pacified. Um. So he gets the rights to Ballad of the Sad Cafe. Yeah. But you didn't hesitate. You would have been, what, in your 30s? Uh, I was 89, so I was... Uh, Just knocking 40. Uh, knocking 40, yes. Mm. 
and um, had never thought of directing a film at all before. Um, they said, well, why don't you use Walter Lasserley, who is a famous Oscar-winning director of photography and uh, so on. But he was a man who was riddled with uh, disappointment and rage because he wanted to direct films. So the pain of that, that think, why, why should I, Simon Callow, who knows nothing about making films, be allowed to direct a film? And I, Walter Lasley, who knows everything about filmmaking. So it was a very, very tough time. So did you think at that time when that happened, tough as it was, that, you know, Shirley Valentine was a huge success, that you were more going to be a director than an actor at that point? Or, or did you always see it as a mix? Well, greed. I'm a very greedy person. That's why you're on Out to Lunch, it's the perfect. <laughs> exactly. I thought, well, I can do everything. But I, was, I couldn't see any reason not to do anything that I was doing. This is the life, a dream life. I had never dreamt of that life, but here it was for me. Now, I mean, I directed at the National Theatre. I directed at the, in the West End. I directed on Broadway. Now I was directing a movie in Texas on Willie Nelson's estate with Vanessa Redgrave and Rod Steiger. So, of course, I felt uh, I was absolutely invincible. I mean, how could, I, how could it not just go on like that? I have to ask, everybody asked you about Four Weddings. You later found out that Richard Curtis had written the character of Gareth with you in mind. So I, I, so I have been told. But you've I, never asked him. I, I said, no, I've never asked him. Uh, uh, but um, what I do know and can say with absolute certainty is that I was the very first person to be cast in it the first time round, because, as you know, it fell through the first time round. And then six months later, it came back to life. But, and I was still playing Gareth, which, is, which was... How important to you was it, given it was 1994, that... I mean, you'd worked out that Gareth was the funeral pretty quickly, hadn't you? I, 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 when I saw the title, I said, I bet I'm the funeral. <laughs> Why was it that you thought you'd be the funeral? I don't know. I, I've discovered later that the, the appetite of the British public to see me die is almost limitless. And, of course, as a gay man, uh, uh, this is in 92, so yeah. it was something like 92, and uh, we were still in the midst of AIDS. And, and so I was really, really so thrilled to see that I died of something other than AIDS. I died of Scottish dancing, basically. Rigorous Scottish dancing. Yeah, yeah. I've often said that the film is basically a, a government health warning against the perils of Scottish dancing. The most brilliant scene is the funeral, which takes place against the gasworks in the background. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. seriously industrial working yeah, class. Yeah, totally. And he is a invented, he has invented himself. I never knew that until uh, 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 when I read the script and it didn't describe us in the script at all. And it wasn't until we had a week of rehearsal and the designer came along and said, this is uh, where the funeral will take place. And I, I realized, so I was able to use it, sort of been aware of it, but um, you're right. The one that was a, a, a wonderful um, stroke of, 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 of the filmmakers Giving Gareth this working-class background True. from somewhere very humble and, we and all, reinvented himself. I've known so many people like that, especially gay men like that, who've become this sort of almost cartoon figures, uh, but, but, but splendid and ebullient and fruity and all of that, who, 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 and that bears no resemblance to their background. Also, sorry, I must say about yeah. the, the remarkable qualities of that film is that, that Hugh, Hugh's character says after the funeral, he says, you know, we, we all of us go around together like this and all looking, you know, wanting to get married, that's what we talk about, and we just never noticed within our midst there was a marriage, a very 
strong and beautiful marriage, which is Gareth and uh, and uh, Matthew, and, and and that that even now moves me that he articulated that so presciently and so beautifully ahead of time, you know. Come in. Neat. Don't be shy. <laughs> Don't be shy. <laughs> You've got our starters. We want to yeah. see you. Hello. So this is your mushroom toast. So you have cardoncelli and king oyster mushrooms. Mm. And your trout riette on toast. Thank Some you. Some trout roe on top. Mm. greens and radishes. Thank you very much. You're welcome. What's interesting to me is you, you finished school and clearly you must have done pretty well in exams and all of that stuff and university was a possibility. No, I didn't want to go to you. I was toying seriously with the Navy, just because to see the world get out of England, get out of myself, you know. Knowing absolutely that I was gay and not knowing how to deal with that. Was that genuinely a reason why you thought the Navy might be a good idea? Yeah, because you, you'd read that it was a great place for gay men at that time. Totally. And see the world at the same time, you know. I, I, I was going to the theatre all the time. I was utterly stage-struck. The weird thing is, I didn't at any point think, oh, I, why didn't I become an actor? It didn't really cross my mind at all. So when I wrote to Olivia, it wasn't with a view, actually, it wasn't with a view to getting a job even. It was a, with a view just to telling him. To, I wrote a three closely typed, three full cap page letter to him, explaining to him what a wonderful theatre he was running. And that's the result was him saying, why didn't you come work at the box office? You, you worked in the box office at the old Vic because Larry Olivier had said, we have a job for you. That's right. Uh, the, 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 it's a great story, sir. Yeah, 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 it is true, yes, yes. There were all these actors in the, the old Vic and all crowded into the old Vic canteen where we all went. Olivier very wisely had converted a couple of storage spaces into a canteen with wonderful food, very cheap. So everybody went. So they were all there. Maggie Smith, John Gielgud, Jonathan Miller, uh, the, all the kids who were working there at the time, Michael Gambon and Derek Jacobi and so on, they were all, all everybody was in the canteen. So I, I got to see actors at close quarters and I realised that although they were often very fascinating and funny people, they weren't extraterrestrials, you know. I mean, I, I didn't know how you... It had never crossed my mind as to how you might become an actor. And suddenly I saw, well... It's, it's, it's possible, and I snuck into the back of rehearsals, which took place in the theatre. So did you watch Olivier direct as well? Yes, out of the corner. I mean, I, I really... I, I, he was actually redirecting something. And he wasn't a very flamboyant director at all. He'd just go and murmur in the actor's ear and sort of say, why don't you try this, darling? That sort of thing. But I saw Peter Brook directing. That was spectacular. Peter Brook was one of the great... He's still with us, actually. He certainly he? is. He uh, must be deep into his 90s. Yep. I hadn't seen a, a Peter Brook production till then, and it was absolutely overwhelming. And I just knew I had to be part of this world of, of acting and theatre. Then, and only then, did I have any interest in going to university. And I thought, well, the obvious place to go is Trinity College Dublin. That's the place to go. Which is the act Wilds. of a romantic, yeah. it has to be said. Someone who's read a lot of literature and decided mm. that it's the Irish who are perfectly in touch with their mm. emotional creative souls. Did you just get Absolutely. the wrong city? Is that what happened? No, no, no. That was the year in which, 68, when, when the British government finally acknowledged that Ireland was a separate country and so you couldn't get a grant to go there. So I thought, well, I'll go to Belfast. It'll be much the same. It wasn't. The civil rights movement was just getting underway under Bernadette Devlin and so forth. And others. Um, um, it was um, the people's democracy was really the flagship of, of the uh, 
you know, the civil rights movement. You know, homosexuality had only been made legal in England, yeah. what, the year before, 67? Yeah, 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 semi-legal. Yeah, well, semi-legal, yes. Yeah. I mean, there were was, you were still underage. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they passed the same law in, in Northern mm, Ireland right. for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. So were you having to be secret or simply not act upon who you were? I didn't hide it from anybody, but on the other hand, I had had no experience, uh, 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 homosexual experience at all, I, uh, nothing. It was a concept rather than a... Absolutely, yeah. The old Vic had been, of course, a swarm with gay people and, and very relaxed, you know, very... To work at the old Vic Theatre in 1960, it was like kind of going into the Garden of Eden. I mean, it was just, it was like wonderfully innocent and open. In the theatre, outside of the theatre, they couldn't do that. And in interviews and so on, they, you know, talked about, you know, um, uh, waiting to meet the right girlfriend and all the rest of it. But, but because it was still potentially illegal. But in the theatre, there was this great sense of camaraderie and fun. And the first time I, you know, heard gay banter and jokes, and all that. It seemed to make a lot more sense than the Navy, frankly. <laughs> I still had a slight uh, kind of longing for the, um, the open seas, but the one thing I wasn't was confident of my own attractiveness. And that's a sort of legacy, I have to say, of being the only child, the only male, but a child, in a totally female environment. And, and they were all, you know, ragging me about my appearance and uh, um, how dreadful I looked and how fat I was and how um, what a weird-looking child and all that. And that was all. Well, that's going to have an impact. Isn't yeah, it? it does. But it was all done. I think they thought in very good humour. But unfortunately, you, it means something to you. It really does um, get to you. I think it's a room with a view where Julian Sands and Rupert Graves yes. are dancing naked round the ponds, and so yeah, are yeah, you. Absolutely. And there they were, these gorgeous creatures. Gazelles, I said, uh, hotly yeah, pursued didn't. by a hippopotamus. <laughs> <laughs> but that's on film. You then have to watch it back. <laughs> uh, what, what I'm curious about here is that going into that business and getting, obviously, theatre and then film and television, requires you to look at yourself. Was that not uncomfortable? Hate Still do, especially warm to my physical appearance, but always, no, I could have done it so much better and then I just feel ashamed, you know. As in the theatre, you can, every night, you can get better. So would you ask to do it again and again on film sets? No, not really. I wouldn't now, but I think I did, would originally. Amadeus, of course, is a very, very theatrical film. It was my first film. Midler Foreman, who directed it, was so absolutely frightened of theatre acting. He'd say... <laughs> <laughs> there will be no acting in my film, no acting. And I said, but, but, but Milos, I'm playing an actor on a stage, acting. And he was, after long, deep thought, very well, but this is the only acting there will be in my film. Which is actually hilarious. And I want to go back to one thing about um, Amadeus, Peter Sheffer's Amadeus, which you played Mozart in, yeah. in the original production yeah. in 1984 at the National. Yeah. I mean, there is a question there. You originated the role in London. You played the role of Mozart. When the film comes along, you don't get to play Mozart. Mm. Were you disappointed about that? A bit of a blow, I have to say. And Milos announced that, because Milos was at the very first preview in London and did the deal that day. So he comes to the first preview of Amadeus at the National. Yeah. And he does the deal backstage, goes, right, I'm buying, I'm buying an option on this right now. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? Yes, incredible. By the way, I must say, that 
meal thing there, they, they truffled mushrooms, was utterly sensational. I'm glad you said that. We like, we like a bit of food in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, really, I mean, utterly outstanding, both the, the mushrooms and the, and the treatment of it. I just, my my uh, trout riette was very good indeed. Ooh. We have more to come. Yeah, I know. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I had an experience once with somebody who wanted to, um, like, role play, uh-huh. like, um, like with relative stuff. No. Yes. No. That's a and hard I couldn't. Pass. And I said, I said, um, they no. wanted. They first said, da- like, dad, daddy, oh, and, and, and I said, um, well, that's not so bad. But um, so I suggested maybe, like, I said maybe the most I could do is uncle. <laughs> Okay, so that was just a snippet of an episode with actor and podcaster Justin Long. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and I'm telling you, you need to listen to the full episode on my podcast, Dinner's on Me. Over a meal at Pine and Crane in downtown LA, we get into his love story with Kate Bosworth, his career, and so much more. To listen, just search Dinner's on Me wherever you listen to podcasts. Ian McKellen came out very publicly a couple of years later. I always tried to get the timing right. Mm. I know Major was still in power because mm. it wasn't one of Blair's. He sort of credited you with the or part of the willingness to do so. Me, me and uh, Armstead Morpin. Because I'd come out basically in, 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 in my, my book, my first book, being an actor. That was the only way I could come out because the National Theatre, when I was there and being interviewed, for the first time, were very, very anxious for me about my revealing that I was gay. And yet you did, didn't you? In, in, in uh, countless interviews, they'd asked you if you had yeah. a girlfriend, you'd say, no, I'm gay, and they wouldn't print it. Not at all, no. And I, I remember once saying to her, uh, I, I, uh, is it true that you're bisexual? I said, absolutely not. It's a scandalous suggestion. <laughs> I mean, so Ian... Publicly uh, comes out. Ian said to me, one day in Los Angeles, he said to me, look, um, do you think I should come out? And I said... It's very hard for me to answer that question because my coming out was a much easier thing because I'm a character actor in terms of your career, I mean. I'm a character actor and you're, of course, a a romantic leading actor. He said, well, of course, that has been my anxiety, but he said a young woman had just come up to him in Los Angeles and said, "Uh, I think you're gorgeous. And he said, "Uh, you do know I'm gay, do you? And she said doesn't stop you from being gorgeous. And, and that, that, a very good response. A very good response. And I think that really lodged itself in his brain. So I, I was used to say to Ian that I was John the Baptist to his Jesus as far as coming out was concerned. I was merely a forerunner. Okay, oh, you're caught me. with Pepinata. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's nice, nice of you to invite me over for this snack. I know. It's also, I'm, I'm looking at this. This is a large portion of <laughs> lamb with some ragu, which I think is has been panned and breadcrumbed yes, and so forth. Lamb. 
Crumdlam. My cod is wrapped around with voluptuous greenery, whose name I can't remember. Agretti. Is this the Agretti? No. Yes, yeah. it oh, is. That's Can I get you another drink, Tom? Not me. Thank yeah, you. I've, fine, I've thank done. You. I've done. I have to talk to you about the writing. It's an extraordinary part of your life. Mm. You've been working on Orson Welles since 1989. Exactly right. We've had three volumes. Yeah, and the fourth is, is, is actually... Um, in gestation at the moment. In gestation, you haven't started writing the fourth. No, but that's not that's the easy bit, as you know. It's the, it's the rest which is hard. In, in one of the reviews, it was the Guardian review by Anthony Quinn. He delights in one of your lines. So he's making the point that you didn't just write a hagiography of Orson Welles. <laughs> you weren't always brilliantly praiseworthy. There was one line that he picked out, and I've written it down there. Would yeah. you mind reading it to me? Happy delighted. Needing yet more money. He accepted a dreadful part in a dreadful film on which he behaved dreadfully. <laughs> I'm intrigued by the, the, the subjects you choose. Shakespeare, Dickens, your much beloved Dickens. You've done one-man shows about Dickens. Yeah. Uh, Charles Lawton, Wagner. Mm-hmm. These are huge subjects. And not only are they huge subjects, they are also ones whose turf is occupied mm-hmm. by academics. And yet, you go for it. Did you ever hesitate over some of those subjects, or did you just think, well, there's no point doing a small character for a book? No, it just sort of, it, it, it just all seemed logical to me. So, so I, the first book was about, well, exactly as the title suggests, about being an actor, and I was using myself as a very young actor as, a, as an example of what an actor's life is like. Did you have a contract for that book when yeah. you wrote it? Mm. Thanks to Peggy Ramsey. With you wrote a whole book about her as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Love is Where It Falls, it's called. And, and uh, I, I, I just met her at, uh, uh, well, I mean, we just, it just sort of combusted our, our, our friendship. And it was, on, on her part, it was very passionate. And had I been otherwise inclined, it would have been consummated, I think, even despite the uh, gap in our years, which was 40 years. She was 70, I was 30. You're very well known for your one-man shows. Yeah. Wild, yeah. Dickens... Uh, you're going to tell me the, what some of the other ones Wagner. are. Wagner. I find myself wondering whether there's a desire for control. As in, if it's just you writing the book. Now, obviously, you've had directors yes. on your one-man shows. No, no, no. But if you're doing a one-man show, you never have to worry about yeah. the uh, <laughs> other actors missing their mark, forgetting their lines. If you forget your lines, <laughs> you can extemporise <laughs> because you know the work. Mostly I wrote them. Yeah, mostly you wrote them. Is yeah, that, is no, there, is a, there is an element of that. There's no doubt about it. I, I feel... And, and something to do... You're right uh, to put it in this way. It's something to do with being able to control the whole event. It's a sort of Prospero-like feeling. But these huge characters yeah. you've chosen. It's true that all my biographical subjects, and I include Peggy in that, are very expansive and very what I would call generous, but some people might say exhausting, noisy, or something else. Uh, And I did spend a lot of my early life being told to be quiet and just calm down. Could you just, you know, be a bit less, you know? I've never really warmed to the idea of being less. (laughs) It's not an idea that time has come for me yet. Maggie, when we first got together on Room with a View, she kind of recoiled from my from my ebullience. It sort of it was like a physical pain to her. <laughs> one of my favourite things is when I'm, I'm phoning her to ask her if she'd do a, a memorial service for Patrick Garland, and she was 
considering it. And, 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 and she said, and what, and what are you doing? What, what are you doing at the moment? And I said, uh, well, I'm afraid it's another one-man show, Maggie. And she said, oh, very sensible. No, none of that kicking the other actors out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that, that does sort of gently lead me yes. to, a, to a, a, something I, I was curious about. December, obviously, we lost Anthony Sher. Mm. All of the obituaries referred to him being almost pathologically jealous of you. For a while. He was for a while, it's true. What was that about? Because God knows Tony Sher had a hell of a career. Amazing. I mean, I know he was insanely ambitious as a young man in, in a way that was not to do with just wanting to be rich or famous or anything like that, but was a matter of life and death for him that to succeed. He felt like an absolute schlemiel. As a, as, a, as a boy, he just felt like a nothing, a nobody. A... We need to put this in context for everybody who's not completely clear on the yeah. depth of his career. At one point, he won the Olivier, both for playing Richard III and the title role in Torch Song Trilogy, as he said, exactly. for playing both a king and a queen. Yes, and One of that. his first novels was long-listed for the Booker Prize. But he, that hadn't been his experience of himself as a young man. He was going to get on top. It's not enough to be good. You've got to be best. Otherwise, somebody's going to come creeping up on you. Olivier felt like a sort of nobody as a child. His, the famous thing that Olivier says in his, in his um, autobiography, his father was a famous preacher, um, a, a, a high church of England preacher, Father Olivier. He was a, and he regarded his second son as completely you know, useless. Uh, and and um, Olivier said, uh, um, the only problem in my relationship with my father was that he could never see the slightest point in my existence. And that motivated everything that followed? Everything. In my view, every time Laurence Olivier stood on stage, he said, now, Daddy, now, am I, am I it? And, but it had to be that he was best. And Tony had the same. Did you get any parts that he thought should have been his? Mozart. OK. For sure. We were, found ourselves in the audience for for the same play, and he said to me, you know, I've just uh, written a book. And he said, uh, well, it's about my year playing Richard III. And he said, I couldn't think of a title, so I asked David Hare if he would suggest a title. And David suggests, Hello, Simon. <laughs> and, and then when Tony rejected that, he said, well, I, I think you should call it My Dick. <laughs> It is called, in case anybody wants to read it, Year of the King. <laughs> and a very good book. It is. It's a very jolly book. sort of romp of a book mm. through the process of mm. that remarkable performance of Richard III. Mm -hmm. We've looked at all the stuff that, that's happened. It's not like you've stopped, is it? You've had a part in Hawkeye, part of the Marvel Universe. Is it fun being on those huge productions, or do they leave you slightly cold? There's a danger that you're sort of just racing to just shoot and do it. Do it decently, do it with energy, but but to try to carve something out. There's not a lot of rehearsal on those kind of productions, is there? And the script was being rewritten all the time and so on, which is very usual, par for the course with those things. And, and, and it turned out perfectly well. And obviously, as I'm somebody who's singing the praises of Merchant Ivory, I'm, I'm, this wouldn't be my ideal, you know, environment in which to make a film. I did make a film last year, which was absolutely ideal for Mark Gatiss, called... The Amazing Mr. Blunden, to another Christmas. Yes. Because Mark is the person he is, because he's essentially optimistic, grounded, clear in everything that he wants, not 
at all neurotic that I'm aware of. We, we did it with ease and with focus and, and... Are you saying it was fun? It was fun, it was fun, but it was also serious. I, I realize about myself that all I've ever hoped for in my life is not to be famous, not to be um, rich, but to be unique, to make a contribution that nobody else has made. When you're under the wrong sort of pressure, you start to do generic work. And the ghastly thing for me would be to be giving the Simon Callow performance in the Simon Callow part. That would be too depressing. Have there been times where you've been offered those and you can see what they're looking for? Life and death of the party uh, uh, characters. Well, I was going to say, is is it the case that you basically did it when you did Gareth in in Four Weddings and a Funeral? Obviously, that was a character. Mm. And, of course, since then, they've always wanted, you know, Gareth the likes. Bring everything bang up to date. Yeah. You're about to go into Anything Goes. I am. I'm in it, actually, already. Is, are you already doing it? Uh, which is a fabulous production of classic musical theatre. I mean, it's, it's stunning. Not necessarily, if I'm honest, the sort of thing I'd associate you with. Well, is it, are you having a ball? Is it a huge I am, fun? I am. I tell you why, because it's, uh, first of all, the material is so fantastic. Even the book, which has been reworked, I mean, 200 times since P.G. Woodhouse and Guy Bolton first... That's the script to a musical The, 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 the book. sort of original. Yeah. Uh, the, and then it changed in rehearsal, and, they, and they'd gone and all the rest of it. But as everybody knows, musicals aren't written, they're rewritten, and, and this one has been rewritten to within an inch of its life. But it's achieved something like perfect form. Then it's got a director-choreographer, and it's great that that is the same person. So one thing always leads to another, builds on the thing that went before. Result, just absurd delight on the part of the audience. And and even the comic plots, which are my part of my department, uh, are um, so terribly cleverly crafted that all I have to do is to create a character that you believe in. And that's what I... I think I've done, and I'm delighted to have done it, and I think people are pleased to see Eli J. Whitney Jr. uh, back on stage whenever he chooses to come. When you get to the end of the first act, this is giving no spoilers, because it's called Anything Goes, and they give up their Anything Goes at the close of the first act, and it is the most stonking piece of tap. Where are you on that stage? Are you sort of... I'm in my dressing. Are you in your dressing (laughs) room? (laughs) (laughs) You see, I've clearly seen it, and I adored it. But I, I couldn't quite visualise uh, where your predecessor was on stage. He can't be on stage. Elijah can't be on stage because his uh, sidekick, Billy Crocker, is at the centre of it. And he's talking about his love of this girl and all the rest of it. If, if he heard that, he'd know that he was on board. So for plot reasons, I'm delighted to say, I'm not involved in anything, but I am involved in uh, Blow Gabriel Blow. And then I'm up on the stairs, whirling around, doing all the everything a boy should do in a, a situation like that. And it's ex- exhilarating, but I, I feel I need to lie down for an hour afterwards. And fortunately, I can, because it's a great gap. Well, that's beautiful planning. No, I know, I know, it's a paradise. <laughs> Simon, um, let me take this opportunity to say thank you for letting me take you out to lunch. It thank has you. been everything I hoped for and, and more, <laughs> it really has. Even if you didn't make it to dessert. But very good meal, I have to say. I'm not just saying that to 
Thank you so much to Simon. He really is hugely entertaining company. Um, Anything Goes will be on tour in Edinburgh, Dublin and Manchester before arriving back in London. For tour dates and tickets, go to anythinggoesmusical, or one word, .co.uk. It really is a fabulous night out. Uh, if you loved our show, well, please do follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this with everyone you know. Comment, give us, oh, I don't know, five stars on Apple Podcasts. It does help us to make more. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged, and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Leif Troop, and the mix engineer, Gulliver Tickle. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time, it's rapper, broadcaster and entrepreneur, it's Tiny. Who's on the mic right now? Jay Rayner. I'm going to come right here, Jay Rayner. <laughs>